1: me I am up my line, I am I am
0: bash. Welcome to the paradigm shift on. 4 at 102.1 FM, your local community radio station, of course, broadcasting on the lands of the Jagger and turbal people. Although myself, Andy, am coming to you again this week from Bashur, the northern part of Iraq, but the southern part of Kurdistan, where I've been for the last month or so. And today on the show, I'm going to be bringing you a couple of interviews that I've done with people here. I've been very privileged to meet some amazing people during my time here. And today you'll get to hear from a couple of them. One is Choman Hardy, um, feminist, poet, novelist and academic, who has just released a new book. But I talked to her about all kinds of things about how the role art can play with trauma, about um, trying to do feminist academia in the Middle East, and about uh, some of her attempts to bring out different sides to some of the stories of recent history in Kurdistan. And in the second half of the show, I speak to Nayef Sabri, who is a Yazidi man, originally from Sinjar in Iraq, who like virtually all Yazidis, had to flee his home village in the face of Islamic State's murderous charge through his homeland. While he was living in refugee camps, he and some friends formed a organisation to um, play with some of the displaced little kids and try to do some schooling and some, I guess, support for kids who been extremely traumatized and so we'll hear from knife both about uh, life of Yazidis and also about what they do with the Sunrise NGO. Unfortunately both knifefe and Choman have been through pretty intense years so far in 2023 um, both had to face uh, really hectic public campaigns uh, Choman against her personally. Um, by uh, conservative Muslims and I guess good patriotic, patriarchal Kurds um, trying to claim that she was ruining their society with some of her ideas and uh, Naif as well as all Yazidis in Sinjar there who were demonised in a sort of religious conflict over a lot of Iraqi imams claiming that Yazidis had uh, damaged a mosque in their hometown. The hometown where it should be said, uh, Islamic State tried to eradicate Yazidis off the face of the earth only a few years ago. Um, But both of them have survived and are still uh, cheerful resistors in their own way. And so it was great to chat to them both. And we'll start off with hearing from Choman Hardy. Uh,
2: my name is Choman Hardy. I am a writer and a scholar, an academic. Uh, I have lived abroad for 26 years and I came back nine years ago to teach at the American University in Soleimani. I started working in the English department and founded the Center for Gender and Development Studies. And And I have a new book coming out. Uh, It's my first novel but I've published poems and translation and an academic book before.
0: Mm. Your book launches this week. Can you tell us a a bit more about it?
2: Um, So the book is called Whispering Walls. The the, the main idea about the book really was uh, I'm very much interested in walls. The idea of not learning from the past and repeating the same mistake as individuals but also as a community. I feel that the coded community has been trapped in this circle of doing the same thing all over again and then expecting a different result which according to Einstein is madness. Um, So I was questioning myself about why is it that we don't learn from the past? What is preventing us from not making the same mistake, uh, developing and growing? And My only explanation was there must be a wall created by trauma which prevents you from learning. So I try to explore the idea of this wall through a physical wall in the novel. I don't want to give away the, the plot, but uh, the story is set in the last five weeks before the Iraq invasion in 2003. It's uh, told from the perspective of three siblings, Kurdish siblings. Uh, two of them live in London and one of them in Kurdistan.
0: There is quite a lot of Kurdish writing and poetry and, um a lot of Kurds are quite proud of that uh, literature history I wonder what role does it play for Kurdish people in maybe processing things of the past or dealing with current oppressions
2: so I think poets play a very important role. first of all we historically have struggled to find the right leader a leader that would unite us we are a very fragmented community a divided sometimes very self-destructive community our nation Need symbols to to feel like a community and to work together towards the same goal rather than working against each other and poets have served that purpose, the thing that political leaders haven't been able to provide that sense of a symbol that we all respect and that represents us, that gives us voice have usually been poets in this region. secondly, um, a lot of Kurdish history and culture has been preserved through the language and through the poetry, so poetry. Can now be used as sort of an archival uh, data about the culture at the time, the historical period. So we didn't have many historians, but we had poets telling that story. So I think poets have also been very good at two main themes in classical Kurdish poetry: is patriotism and romantic poetry. So it's either about women or it's about homeland, and sometimes homeland is the woman. You know, uh, mm-hmm. she's like the mother or the lover. Um, so, they have been providing a sense of nationhood because, I mean, you do not survive as a nation just through food and shelter. You also need your language and culture to survive. And I think poetry has provided that means of survival, surviving through language uh, and, you know, escaping assimilation, escaping annihilation, and maintaining culture.
0: You mentioned when talking about uh, your new book. The dealing with these themes of trauma from the past, and in the past you've written as well about the Anfal genocide and the impacts of that. How do you see the impact of the trauma of Kurdistan's recent history, how does it play out in Kurdistan today?
2: Well, it's, it's a, you, you see that in a lot of self-destructive behaviour, I feel. Um, a lot of the divisions, a lot of the lack of clarity about where we should spend our energy. You see it also in, you know, I mean, I think violence, when violence happens in a community, in particular dictatorship, um, because of the surveillance, because of the anybody could be a spy, anybody could be spying, neighbors could be your spy, your brother could be a spy. This destruction of trust, which is very also essential for the survival of a community, And um, years of sanction, and poverty, and conflict has also meant a lot of competitiveness for survival. So because basic needs have not been met, and there's always been a fear of annihilation or assimilation, there is that sense of, um, first of all, focusing on survival. So sometimes you become numb in order to manage the task of survival. And also to see others as not friends, as possible enemies even with the Neuron community. So in a way, this, this kind of um, mentality has been carried on through the peacetime. Uh, so sometimes I am outraged by the fact that there is, nobody gets outraged by injustice anymore. There's this apathy and violence happens over here and a few people will be taking out their mobile phone and recording it. Or you know, women get killed on daily basis and reported in the media and nobody feels shocked by it anymore. You know, a um, few years ago, three Kurdish politicians, female politicians from the Turkish side, you know, members of the PKK, they were killed, they were shot down in Paris, which is supposed to be their place of refuge, and on that day, it was snowing in Sulaimani, and people had gone to the mountains, snowballing, and not feeling the loss, not feeling the pain that they should feel, not feeling the outrage they should feel against injustice. And I think those are consequences of trauma, long-term, and ongoing trauma, because traumatic periods because we need to survive we feel numb and we don't feel the tragedies but if that happens to you enough times in your history then you that becomes part of your personality as an individual and as a community and I think that's the danger and I try to a little bit address that in the novel also this this apathy and this not learning and not moving on
0: what Things do you think can be done to address entrenched trauma? It's not as easy as say you know a government policy about housing people or giving electricity or something like that. I mean how does a nation address its trauma?
2: I think we need to take as many, um, use as many tools as we can. You need research to understand the problem, you need a different kind of education system that creates empathy and uh, acceptance of diversity and um, sensitivity towards animals, humans, communities, different kinds of people, ethnic religious backgrounds. Um, You also need to engage the arts because I think the power of the arts is that they managed to create that safe space for us to feel, you know? And um, a few years ago before the pandemic, uh, this young artist, a new graduate of the fine arts called Tara Abdullah, she did an installation called Feminine. And she had um, spent a few weeks researching about SGBV, sexual and gender-based violence. She had knocked on the doors of neighbourhoods, different neighbourhoods in Suleimani and other regions, asking women if they had experienced any form of sexual or gender-based violence. Yeah, And those who did speak with her or who did let her in, she asked them to tell her their story and to donate a piece of clothing. So each of them donated, some of them donated their scarf, headscarf, some of them donated their home dress, or some of them socks, some of them underwear, or bras, and, and she sort of, mm, sort of knit all of these together. So she sewed all the pieces together, and she created these clothes lines from the bazaar to the courts, kilometers, and um, it was only up for two days, because it created so much anger from the community who are in denial about mm. violence against women. They were like, this is fabrication how could so many women experience violence within the community, how come we don't know any? They, of course, they tried to undermine what they called the revolution of bra and underwear, it's all a lie, Uh, she made it up, and some actually set fire to some of the clothing lines, and the clothing lines were, of course, between electric poles, so after two days, she brought it down, but I think what it did in those two days, it created so much conversation about women's pain, women's suffering behind closed doors and in the privacy of their own homes, and how there's so much denial about it. I think people may turn away from data, they may say your research is biased, they may turn away from journalism, they may not trust it, they may turn away from court proceedings or history. But literature and the arts allow people to feel that pain in a safe way, yeah? Where their mental capacities You know, Kant said that uh, in order to experience a work of art, your imagination and your understanding come together in harmony. And I think the arts have that capacity to bring your understanding and imagination together and to make you feel that pain. And therefore, only if you feel that pain, you would do anything about it. If you constantly shy away from it, if every time a commemoration of the tragedies happen, you switch the channel or turn away, or you don't want to hear the survivors' voices, you shut them out. The arts provide that perspective where you can feel them
3: mm-hmm. and
2: you genuinely understand them. It creates empathy, and that's the first, first ever step towards doing anything differently.
0: I'm interested in, I guess, how we remember, and that you've studied in depth the Anfal genocide and its effects on women, and in Kurdistan, the legacy of Anfal is everywhere, monuments. And and political parties that sort of derive authority from this. But um, in your research you've tried to uncover another side the effects on women. What are the the differences in the way that you see ANFAL to the, the public expression of it?
2: So there are a few things. First of all, when I decided to do this research, I had been watching documentaries about ANFAL for a few years because I was living in London at the time. The Kurdish satellite channels had started appearing late 90s, early 2000s. And there were many documentaries about the Anfal genocide. Many women were interviewed for these documentaries, but I felt that a large part of their experience was not recounted in these documentaries. So I was very much interested in, because the story of Anfal is very much focused on the mass graves, right? The gassing, the widespread gassing, the demolition of villages, uh, the concreting over the water canals and, and water springs, um, farming, uh, looting of the farming machinery and animals and so on and complete destruction of the environment of the community and also the Kurds as the victims the Arabs as the perpetrators. To me that was too simple and, and black and white so I, went, I wanted to have a more complicated understanding because I knew women's experiences in particular, bodily experiences because women's body, bodies are taboo so talking about what a woman 's body experiences, even her own clothing, uh, what happens to that body is, is a taboo so I wanted to know how women coped with menstruation with childbirth in prison, with um, uh, you know uh, miscarriages, with death of children, with sexual harassment with rape, um, how do they survive in the post andphi era after the amnesty when they came back to fringe of the cities they were dumped in the fringe of the cities with their own children and maybe elderly people no men no sons or husbands who were old enough to work so suddenly they become the main breadwinner in the family in a very patriarchal community that believes a woman's space is in the house suddenly they become responsible for children and elderly people suddenly they have to do parenting as well as breadwinning what happened to them? How did they manage? And in particular with views, very strict views of honor and woman and shame and sin. So I went in search of that story and my, basically my perspective is um, including the woman's side of the story only enriches that history that as we know it, uh, it. It makes us understand the extent of the tragedy and its different dimensions, not just for the generic man who was either Shot in the mass graves or died of gas attacks or died in prison, but also for the women and for the children who survived, and some of whom also died in the process. So I tried to sort of bring back those women's voices into that historical period, tell their story from their own perspective, because many of them did actually say to me, I'm going to tell you this, but make sure you don't cut out this part. Make sure you include this in my story, because they had an experience with journalists and um, government workers who would continuously collect data from them, but only pick certain parts of the information and disregard the rest. And they were like, no, no, write this in your book. Write about my experience. Write about my complaints about the Kurdistan regional government, how they didn't help us as much as they should have. Write about my complaints about the Iraqi government, which gave us no compensation and no acknowledgement, and so on and so forth. So I tried to give voice to those experiences, bring them back from the dark, from the silence and amplify the voices of the women who have been telling their stories to many people. But generally, the gatekeepers of storytelling edit and cut out their stories and its significance. Mm.
0: You have also, as well as um, your poetry and writing and researching, Anfal, you've been part of starting a gender studies course in university here in Sulamani. Can you tell us a bit about how that's gone, why you think that's important and how's
2: going? Yeah, so I came back after 26 years, uh, about nine years ago. I started teaching in the English department, Started there was one gender-related course which was part of the English department, Gender, Media and Society, it had a very underdeveloped syllabus. I developed the syllabus and started sort of thinking about developing gender studies. Other colleagues in different departments, in particular social science, came in and helped out. So I founded the Gender Studies Centre in 2015, a year after my return. And for me, it was very important to add that dimension. So, you know, feminists came and they complicated the symbolic world that was represented uh, until the 1960s by men only. So the man's perspective was seen as the human perspective that would represent all of us. And they started problematizing that. They started looking at history and archives and finding why are these women not included in this historical period? Why are women represented as the archetype or the stereotype of either the devil, the monster, or the angel who's submissive and does everything? Most women exist in a spectrum in between why aren't their experiences represented? And this objectification of women and reduction uh, to sex and beauty. So, um, you know, problematizing the way women are represented in the symbolic world, uh, questioning patriarchal values and very common sense ideas that we have inherited from previous generations, asking questions, uh, talking about who has voice and who doesn't, and why and what are the implications of that, who has the power to determine our value system and our legal system and who doesn't have that power. So these were questions that I was very interested in pursuing and, and developing with students um, what I find interesting is that providing services to women and protection and legal representation and changing laws and trying to change women's position in, in workplaces and so on has been done for 20, 30 years. But when it comes to changing the discourse, the patriarchal discourse, it seems that many big interests are threatened. And that's what I have experienced. I feel that a very conservative voices are trying to shut down this alternative discourse that we are trying to build around social construction. Yes, in reality there are differences between men and women. Many more men are capable of rational argumentation, decision-making, independence, but that's socially constructed. It's got nothing to do with biology, which is what they try to claim. They also based in biology because they want to make it seem as if it's unchangeable and fair. There's, it's fair because it's not represent, It's not our wish, it's how God created us or nature created us. So problematizing that discourse and creating a different discourse which shows how women from the day they are born, they're not brought up to be leaders, they're not brought up to be independent, they're not allowed to give a, have a voice to make decisions about their lives. Therefore, of course, when they are adults, they're not going to be as capable of decision-making as men, right? And also the fact that housework and childcare should not just be a woman's responsibility. Nowadays, women also work and, and, uh, like men. So why is it that women end up with two full-time jobs? So they don't want this other discourse. They find it very threatening to their male privilege and their patriarchal hierarchy. So we experienced a major backlash. We have for several years, every now and then on social media, some activist or academic or writer would be attacked. It would usually last two days, three days. But in the last months, we experienced a very well-organized and uh, long campaign. Um, it was trying to intimidate people, uh, push them away to leave, and some one person, her life was in danger, she did leave. And uh, trying to also, by attacking several individuals, trying to silence the whole movement. So they're trying uh, very hard to silence the discourse, and I feel that they are also finding this a lot more threatening than providing legal protection to women. They think that's safer than this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, thanks very much, Chairman. You're welcome. You're listening to The Paradigm Shift on 4 Z with Andy. We were speaking with Choman Hardy about... Uh, some of the ups and downs of running a gender studies curriculum in a Kurdish university. And she certainly lived a pretty extraordinary life, um, Chairman Hardy going as a refugee to the UK at the age of 19 and uh, forging a life there as an academic and poet and then returning to the land of her birth, Iraqi Kurdistan where she's tried to bring feminism into academia and culture there Um, and it's been a bit of a bumpy ride and earlier this year there was a pretty severe campaign against Choman for her work doing uh, that kind of gender education and um, she was forced to leave the country for a bit in fear of her life but she came back and with remarkable courage for a small and softly spoken woman. She has the uh, the spirit of so many Kurds do that they will not be um, silenced or repressed without putting up a fight. And Choman did, uh, just this week, release her new book, Whispering Walls. I haven't managed to read it yet, but I do have a copy, and if you are interested, I'm sure you can find one somewhere as well. We're going to move on to the second interview of the show now, which I did with Nayef Sabri. I also met up with him in Suleimani where he has been studying, but uh, Nayef originally hails from Sinjar, which is in not in the Kurdish autonomous region of Iraq, just across the mountains in the uh, what is still controlled by the Iraqi federal government, but Naif is a Yazidi, which you may not have heard of before, but if you stick around for this interview, you'll be much more knowledgeable about Yazidis by the end. It is an ancient religion um, who have had their share of trials and tribulations over the years. A large number of times they have been attempted to be eradicated by other uh, religions or power groups. But the Yazidis are still hanging on and Niyaf's got a pretty extraordinary story of his own. Living through the attempted genocide of his people by Islamic State in recent years and um, he was forced to flee into refugee camps in Iraqi Kurdistan where he and some of his friends formed an NGO to try to do some education and some play with some of the kids that had been severely traumatized by seeing horrific things and were now living in these camps of internally displaced people. Naif is one of many inspiring people I've met in recent weeks in Iraqi Kurdistan. Let's have a listen to him.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Naif Sabri. I'm from Shingal. I'm Executive President of Sunrise Organization for Civil Society Development.
0: Okay, we'll get talking about Sunrise later on and what you do, but maybe to start off with, you are a Yazidi person and many people in Australia would not know about Yazidis. Can you tell us a bit about who Yazidis are?
3: Okay, so Yazidis is a very ancient religion and we believe it, um, it goes to the Sumerians and, like around uh, 6,000 to 7,000 years old. Uh, and I can say that basically we, we are so related to the nature and we we believe in peace a lot, and also we, as a religion, we say what a beautiful life, because there are like each different religions they believe in God in their own way. So by this we our religions uh, shows how we are happy to live with others, but unfortunately, like Yazidi people uh, have not been lacking during the history and have faced let's say, documented ones, 74 genocides. Uh, but maybe there were many more, but were not recorded, were not documented. And Yazidis are living in, in different uh, continents and, and countries. In Iraq, we have Yazidis in, in north of Iraq. And also we have in, in Georgian, we have in Turkey, we have in Syria. Um, after the the last genocide, which was in 2014, uh, we have um, many Yazidis in Europe, especially in Germany. And also Yazidis have uh, so many holidays and celebrations.
0: That's a good religion where you get a lot of holidays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but 74 genocides is a lot. And you mentioned the most recent one in 2014 with yep. ISIS here in um, Iraq and surrounding areas. Can you tell us a bit more about what happened in the most recent genocide? Yeah,
3: so, I, I will share my story before the genocides, for example, when, like, our, our like, fathers and grandfathers, they were, they were talking about, let's say, the before genocides, 23. I said, no, that must not be true. To be honest, that is, was my feeling about that. No, mm-hmm. like, how can someone attack you and take your mother and sister? That will never happen. And we, at that time, even I was young, but for example with my, my like high school st- friends say no that is not true. When, we, when we're discussing about these things. And we said maybe like Yazidis have been let's say uh, maybe not educated and they didn't, they didn't know before how to deal with their surroundings and these things, that's why they, they, they faced, if they faced uh, 74 genocides but even we didn't believe, uh, to be honest but I saw the last one, unfortunately, like how everything was started uh, in, in June 2014, just like during, let's say, few days the Nino governorate, which is a, a big governorate a uh, province in Iraq, so it was um, like uh, ISIS uh, controlled just during a few hours or even a few days. Uh, and after that, two months, they came to Shingal, the ISIS. Like, we didn't believe that, for example, the, the militaries, uh, both for the KRGS and Iraqi, they will leave us. They, we we, we say, like, they will protect us. But I do remember the first, the, the voice of the first shot very well because they happened to my own village. The, the first shot to Yazidis, they, they, it was happened in my village. So when they attacked with very strong weapons and a big number of ISIS uh, soldiers, uh, our people, they defended themselves as much as they could. But uh, 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 like unfortunately, like all the weapons that Yazidi had at that time, it was so let's say weak. Just clash and cove, and no one protected us. Then it's like we had to leave everything because it's, for example, during these moments when you have people attacking you in, and you are under a very strong attack, then you will remember like what happened before. And Yazidi was uh, like uh, so afraid of taking their women. And uh, that's why, like many of them, just after a few hours starting the war, they they escaped to the mountain. But unfortunately, like many mountain was too far from others. And uh, for example, for the Kocho, it was a village. Like um, it was around one thousand seven hundred or even maybe more individuals at that village. So they couldn't escape. ISIS like uh, ruled the the, the village. Uh, and killed the majority of the men and they, they kidnapped all the women. And just what we have from this village is now some survivors who returned and very small number of, of men. All the others were killed. So we we had only one option at that time. It was the Shingal Mountain and people just escaped there, they, they had nothing to eat, because it's just mountain, like, there is no, like, um, a, a place that you can get water, and, and these things. And some people, like, they threw their kids, because they couldn't uh, feed them at all. Uh, but after, like, um, six days uh, to one week, like, six days to seven days, uh, then the way war opened, that people could, like, skip from the mountain to Syria, then from Syria to Kurdistan. And then we also, my family and myself, was um, among of these people on the mountain for um, around six days. Then we left to to Kurdistan. Mm. Yeah. So now I understand. Doesn't matter, like, if for example, if you are educated, if, if not, if you can negotiate or not, or what whatsoever, you will face genocide. And I will add more to this one. So we say, okay. So now we we just have like. 74 genocides and maybe we can rebuild our areas again and we can return and do this and do this. But just recently, before one month, based on the very misunderstanding, very simple misunderstanding in Shingal, thousands of Muslims leaders, they had a, like a hatred speech on social media and in mosque, in hundreds of mosques in Kurdistan. Um, and they say it's like killing Yazidi is it's allowed, like you can do it and they encourage thousands of people to commit uh, the genocides again. So that means we are not safe, unfortunately, in, in our own area, because there is no, no one can like, truly uh, protect us. And of, of course, like, we are not saying that all Muslims are bad, but uh, unfortunately there are always a good number that they, they can like, commit genocides against CSED. Mm.
0: So, there's been Muslim leaders speaking out against Yazidi and doing hate speech against Yazidi. There's still ISIS camps around Iraq and things as well. Um, have what's the situation for Yazidi people? Have they gone back home to their villages, or are a lot of people still living in refugee camps mm. and
3: gone abroad? So, majority of Yazidi they still displaced in Kurdistan camps. So maybe we can say around thirty to thirty-five percent uh, percentage have returned to Shingan. but to be honest, it's not a a safe place. It's not because there is it lacks uh, services and there are many villages. They, um, for example, before the genocide, there were like thousands of families, but now just like um, a small group. And there are like 20 to 22 campers in the hog. They are, they are full of Yazidis.
0: Yes, you were listening to Naif Dabri talking about Yazidi people and a bit about the story of their survival uh, from those horrendous days of Islamic State's rampage across Iraq. Um, many Yazidis are still displaced in Europe or in Australia or in a number of camps, as Naif said, in Iraqi Kurdistan. But some, like Naif, have gone back to try to rebuild uh, Yazidi life in the region of Sinjar. And let's go back to Naif and hear some of what he's up to there. So let's talk about Sunrise, the Mm -hmm. NGO that you helped to start. Can you tell us about um, how that started and what you do?
3: So, because I was under the, the strong fight in our village when ISIS attacked us, that that moment I will remember forever. Everything was changed in inside me, and I was praying. I cannot interpret that that feeling. It was really like deep in inside me and to to God, then, after we escaped uh, our, our village and went to the mountain and we we were there like for around six days, something like that, I was over overwhelmed with thinking like what I will do if we, we escape or we survive after this genocide, I was just busy with myself because we, we we had nothing to do so after we after we came to to Kurdistan and and we resulted in uh, in a in a school i said no we 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 need to do something then we we established a, a group called sunrise and we organized a lot of activities for for the for the, uh, the children so in in sharia we were like just like reviving uh, let's say international days like uh, international women day and uh, children's days and also having recre- uh, recreational activities for children's like for example like throwing a course music course just basic, very basic activities, because we didn't have a fund to do, we, we, we organized all these things entirely voluntarily with these incomes. And in 2019, we, we, we got the first small fund from International Organization for Migrations, IOM, and we opened our office in Shingal, and we have been there since 2019, and we have implemented more than 20 projects, like for example, we have uh, uh, rehabilitated uh, around uh, five, five schools, two ha- uh, healthcare centers, uh, one like gardens, we ha- uh, and now we have the kindergartens, a, a lot of uh, projects in, in, in Shingal. So, some work It's very hard to measure. The, the environment that, that we, we provide for, for, for children It's unique. For example, in Hol whole Shingal, there is no nutrition for children, except our kindergarten. So I, I cannot measure like, how our nu- nutrition can have an impact on their kids. Just we want to provide them with, with, with main things. And I believe all of us should agree that recreational activities and playing, uh, being together, like, uh, and, and socializing is an important part for, for, for children. We hear from the families and also from the the teachers, those who attend the kindergarten, their liver is much better than than others. Yeah, and also the, our impact. For example, if we didn't provide uh, schools, like thousands of of childrens will will not be able to access education. So I think at least we are we are doing this. For example, last um, in in 2021, so there was a, a school in in Shingal in in, in in, in Al Shimal district, uh, they had a, a school um, made of tent, and uh, due to this uh, strong uh, storm, it was totally destroyed. But we built uh, the caravans, a school uh, made of uh, caravans for them, so, like help many children to access uh, education. When
0: you started um, Sunrise, you said it was the start of 2015, you were living in the displaced persons camp, you would have been very young, um, I'm assuming, maybe only just an adult yourself. Were the other people that were doing with you, were they also all very young?
3: Yeah, so at that time, uh, I was just around uh, uh, 18 years old, and Sunrise was not established based on the experience. It was just, uh, let's say, uh, a seat of responsibility on feeling at that time. And all my colleagues, um, we just have one or two, like, were uh, college students and one graduate. And all others, they were high schools, including me, uh, uh, high school students, not not uh, even college students. So, uh,
0: Yazidi people, as you've said, many of them are still living in uh, displaced persons camps. Yeah. Um, some are, are back in villages facing issues, safety issues and all the other things, poverty and um, trauma and things like that. What do you think the future looks like for Yazidi people and what do you think would be uh, good things to happen for Yazidi people going into the future?
3: Mm. So unfortunately I'm not optimistic based on what I see. For example, just before this recent hate speech against Yazidi, I was much more optimistic but now like just things change every day so you cannot expect any futures for example now majority of the community they just want to go and even the those who stay here they just don't they don't they don't want to do anything they they, they don't they don't have hope to do anything for example they say Oh, like we will not work. We will not have a business. For example, if we, if we again work for many years and just build a, 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 like buy or build a house, just few years again another terrorist group will attack us, and maybe they are right. So I'm really not not optimistic about if. Futures and I don't know what will happen because just like we cannot understand this and like there is no a real support like from international community there is no a real support from uh, Kurdistan government and not from uh, the federal government so we we cannot see anything so, and day to day we lose trust in in our in our own self and our own leaders I believe that Yazidi will not stay. Uh, longer if they're just facing um, genocides.
0: What are the things that keep you going in your work with Sunrise and keep the Yazidi people going? What are the things that give you hope as an individual and as a community?
3: So, for me, whatever happened, just I'm talking uh, about myself individually, I, I can bear things uh, and whatever happens, I say like this is normal in, in, in for example in, in human being natures, and these things like there will always be some people they will try to, to kill you to destroy you, but there always are good people that you can work with them and the, the lives about, chale- about challenges it's not just having a very simple life to, to, to survive that is my, my own Uh, believe I always take things positively I say oh yeah like the for example this happens you can always like benefit from this like almost whatever happened I say oh this is a chance not a a, it's not a challenge but this is hard for for majority of people because it's very hard like to do something today and others will destroy.
0: Okay thanks very much Night.
3: It was my pleasure and thank you too
0: That is Nayef Sabri, you've been hearing there talk about the work of Sunrise NGO in Iraq, supporting uh, Yazidi people and children in particular, trying to rebuild communities there where they have been wiped out um, and so many Yazidi have left and it's quite frightening for those that have gone back to their home villages if you want to find out more about sunrise ngo you can do that on the internet it is sunrisengo.org, and you can find out more info there and chuck them some money if you're so inclined also chairman hardy who was uh the first interview guest on this show she's just got a new novel out called whispering walls but also Um, She's written a lot of poetry over the years, which you can also check out. But we are just about out of time for another week on the Paradigm Shift. I'll see you next week.